Hey there, I'm Beth McEntee and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week, we're bringing you an episode from the archives, taking a look back at some of the standout conversations we've had over the year. We're revisiting this episode with CODA's CEO and co-founder, Shashir Marotra, in light of CODA's stunning growth since our conversation. When we spoke to Shashir, they had just come out of beta and released CODA 1.0, a new type of doc for collaboration. The founding team crossed paths at Google, YouTube, and Microsoft, where they saw their team stretch the limits of what spreadsheets and documents could do. This led them to band together in 2014 to build the doc they always wanted, one that erased the boundaries between words and data. In this chat with Shashir, he explains how he guided YouTube through hypergrowth, the limitations of existing productivity tools, and how Coda is enabling a new generation of makers. It's still one of our favorite collaboration tools here at Intercom. So if you're a product builder or someone that's just interested in technology trends and what that means for makers, this is the episode for you. Our guest for today's show is Shashir Marotra, the CEO of Coda, a new type of doc. Shashir, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. For the sake of our listeners, could you give us a rundown of your career to date? Uh, let's see. I began my career at uh, college. I went to MIT out in Massachusetts a long time ago, and I started my first company. It was called Centrata, and then I spent uh, six years at Microsoft. I worked on Office, then Windows, then SQL Server. Then I moved back to the Bay Area and joined Google. I spent about six years, most of that running the YouTube products, and then I left Google in 2014 to start Coda. So you've done a few things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly impressive very, career. Very lucky career stops. How yeah. has that transition been for you going from a giant company that is Google back to an early stage small startup that is Coda? Yeah, good question. I mean, there's parts that are incredibly different, parts that are very similar. I mean, there's, uh, I love the, the, some of the lessons you learn at some of these bigger places, your ability to carry them forward and re-implement them in your own environment and sort of take the best parts of each one is, uh, is, is always fun. The, uh, if I had to pick like what's most different, it was this sort of returning to being a, a maker. I went from most of my day being watching other people do things, being in meetings and reviews and so on, to all of a sudden, you know, I was there writing specs, doing designs, trying to figure out what the product was. Uh, it's just like this uh, creative outlet that is, you know, sort of infectious once you start doing it again. It's always fun being able to roll up your sleeves and, and yeah. do that type of work again. So Code has been in beta for about a year now, and in exciting news, uh, you just released Code 1.0. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's been a big week for us. You know, came out of beta, launched Code 1.0, and it's so now it's generally available. Anyone can anyone can try it. The most important piece of launch is a is a brand new mobile experience, which is pretty awesome. But really, you know, for me, the milestone for Code 1.0 is that for the first time we're really delivering on our original promise, which is that you can build a dock as powerful as an app. And we're really excited about that. Soon we'll talk more about it in a bit. Yeah, it's fantastic. We're big, big fans and users of Coda here at Intercom, so I'm keen Thank to hear you. more about what you guys are shipping and what's coming next. Yeah. Um, but first, let's talk a little bit more about how Coda came to be. So you joined YouTube back in 2008, and you helped guide them through hypergrowth after its acquisition by Google. During that time, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned scaling the product organization? Yeah, so a lot of different lessons. If I had to, if I had to pick one to to latch onto, it's this idea that I think most great businesses have a really, really simple thesis, 
and that that thesis can be can seem pretty crazy at first. Um, I mean, there's lots of examples in the industry. Uh, you know, Amazon has this really clear perspective on the world needs a universal online retailer. You know, I, the way I think about the intercom one is that businesses should be able to talk to their their users as humans. You know, the Gmail one was like, you know, pretty sharp was that basically you should never have to delete email. And so some of these are sometimes hard to see. When I got to YouTube in 2008, we had sort of amazing growth in lots of different ways, but it took us a little while for us to be able to articulate our unique thesis clearly. And so, so the YouTube thesis is, that online video is going to do to cable what cable did to broadcast, and the, that we're going to go from you know three channels to three hundred channels to three million channels. And interestingly, the first time I made that statement, online video is going to do to cable cable did to broadcast. I gave this talk at this conference in in New York in two thousand nine, and I I almost got laughed out of the room. And just to like put it in context, at the time. The YouTube comparisons, our, our competitors, so to speak, were a company called Flickr and another company called MySpace. And you know, to this audience, they looked at it and said, this just sounds ridiculous. This guy's up there talking about YouTube in the context of cable. And what does YouTube have to do with like ESPN and Disney and all these cable channels? And it's something we strongly believed and we, we leaned into. And it probably took you know, four years before people started repeating that line. And nowadays when I say it, people just sort of nod their head like it's obvious, like online video is going to do to cable, cable, to broadcast. But, you know, if I had to pick a lesson out of that period, it's that, you know, identifying your thesis is hard, but you have to live it, you have to execute it, and you have to be completely willing for it to be misunderstood for a long period of time until you can really prove it to the world. So I think that was a probably main YouTube lesson. Yeah, you got to stick to your guns. And kind of to, to kind of prove your point, a fascinating story I heard recently from a good friend of mine who spent Christmas with his family in Australia and all of his young nephews and nieces was that they don't watch TV. They watch YouTube. Yeah. And they only watch YouTube artists, which I found fascinating. And it's, it's incredible to see how that, that landscape is changing. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard to appreciate now with hindsight and the press thought that Google had made a mistake when they acquired YouTube back uh, all those years ago. Um, YouTube, of course, looks very, very different 10 years on. Uh, were you always convinced that it would be the success that it is today? Always convinced. I think that's strong. I'd say I, <laughs> I, had, uh, I had pretty high hopes, uh, but it took a while before I had real, real confidence. And, you know, for, first off, your, your recollection of that period is, is definitely accurate. I mean, when I showed up the 2008, YouTube was basically seen as um, a big mistake. It was losing tons of money. It was these grainy videos. It was these big lawsuits, cats doing things that nobody understood. And I would get these articles forwarded from my mom that said, you know, YouTube is is Google's first big mistake. And uh, what are you doing? And, you know, we, we had our confidence in, in our thesis and we could see how it was working. But I find that usually your confidence in a business doesn't come out of some framework. It comes out of some experience. And so so for me, my confidence in YouTube was pretty formed around a pretty formative story. So there's a uh, 2009, I had, um, had this experience with uh, this guy, Sal Khan. So Sal runs, uh, now runs this thing called Khan Academy. But at the time he was at a, at a hedge fund and he, he and I went to college together and he, um, we have like very similar paths in some ways because we both married our college sweethearts and both our wives are physicians. And so we would stay in touch. And he uh, he was over for dinner. This was 2008. I just joined. 
and he's over for dinner and he said, uh, and I told him, I said, I just joined YouTube. And he said, oh, that's awesome. I use YouTube all the time. And I said, like, sort of like your, you know, your, your, uh, your story. Yeah. And I was like, oh, great. Like, uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, you have any feedback and so on. He said, no, I don't think you understand. Like, I, I create on YouTube. I publish on YouTube. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he told me the story. And, you know, for, for listeners that may not know, his sort of quick version of his story is that he had a cousin in Louisiana who needed help with their math homework. And they could never find a time to get onto Skype and be on the same time. And so he told her, just send me your your uh, problems. I'll solve them, record myself, and send it back to you. And at the time, the most efficient way to send video over the internet was YouTube. And so we were like an email attachment service for him. <laughs> and, and it turned out that he left the public setting on, and so people were watching this video. And, uh, and so he tells me the story. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I didn't really think much of it. I went to work the next day. And I go and I look at the stats and I look at the education stats for all the education channels. And this was, people remember, Stanford and MIT had both committed at the time to put all their lectures online. So they had all, all like YouTube was full of, of great lectures. And I look at the stats and I e- immediately email Sal and I say, I don't think you know this, but your viewership is more than Stanford and MIT combined. Um, <laughs> and you have to join the YouTube partner program. So at the time, you had to get invited to be, be part of the partner program and make money on YouTube. And so he says, fine, he joins, and then, you know, you fast forward a few months, and the throw for dinner again. And I asked him, you know, how's it going? And he says, oh, yeah, it's going great. Thanks for, you know, getting me into the partner program. And he kind of pull, pulls me aside a bit, and he says, you know, I've been looking, and I've been looking at my, my checks. These checks come in from YouTube every month. And, you know, he's a mathematician. He says, I've been extrapolating a little bit. And I think we're like, I can see when this is going to pay for rent. And, you know, I can see a little bit further and it might pay my hedge fund salary. And he looks at me and he asks the question. He says, what do you think? Should I quit my job and do this full time? And his wife looks at me, you know, and like (laughs) doesn't say anything actually and gives me this death stare. Says, you know, answer correctly. Um, And I ignored her. (laughs) And I I said, look, I'm not, uh, you know, I can't promise anything, but I'm betting my career on it. And I think we have a real good shot at it, told him what the thesis is about. And I told him, if you if you make the choice, I'm happy to support you doing it. And, you know, he's I'm sure he asked the same question to a thousand different people. So my, my advice is probably just a small piece of it. But the like the interesting thing, if you think about that thesis, online video is going to do the cable, what cable did the broadcast and just picture Sal like even like five years earlier, if he was if he had said, say, he had gone and pitched the show to like PBS and he had said he had this idea for a show and they might have said, OK, great. So like, what's your education background and, and you know, what do you teach? And he'd say, no, I don't I don't teach. I'm a hedge fund guy. And they would have said, uh, OK, so what's your media background? Like, have you ever done anything in content? And we said, no, never done anything. He said, OK, what's your idea? And he said, well, I'm going to start with the first problem in the algebra book. I'm going to solve it. And then the second problem, the third problem, I'm going to work my way all the way up to the end of the algebra book. And then I'm going to do the next book. And by the way, I'm uh, never going to show my face in a video. There's no characters. There's no music, you know, no theme song. Already sounds else. crazy. Uh, that's it, right? He would have gotten laughed out of the room. And instead, because he didn't have to ask anybody, he got this like ability to, to show off his talents. And so, you know, when I go back and like think about moments where this thesis like went from being a theory that you could see in a in a paper to being like real is like watching this guy that clearly in the previous world had no shot you know when when i looked at it and said like if he can bet his career on it then then this is going to work and so that was probably first big moment for me that's a fascinating story and isn't it funny how some of the most successful outcomes start off as mistakes by leaving his video yeah leaving it's public right exactly okay let's shift gears a little bit but Go back to talking a little bit more about your experience working at YouTube during that period of hypergrowth. And in mm. particular, let's talk about what collaboration within and between teams look like. Were there any specific ways of working or tools that you used or rather pain points that you experienced that inspired you to found Coda? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, in fact, the way we use YouTube internally was sort of one of the big inspirations for, for Coda and it reflected an observation I'd had for a long time. And maybe as context, the YouTube you know, bought into Google, but was really a pretty separate company. I mean, we had a separate office, we had a separate brand, and so we had some freedom to try our own, our own techniques and you know, obviously borrowed the best of what we could from Google, but we also adjusted when, when we wanted to and did things a little bit differently. And when I talk about the history of Coda, I generally talk about these two observations that, that drive Coda. And the first one is that we think the world runs on docs, not apps. And this was something where, you know, it was very true at, at YouTube. And th- there was a bunch of examples. I mean, Google uses a system for goal setting called OKRs, mm-hmm. uh, pretty popular, used by a lot of other companies now. Um, there's a particular way of doing it and a tool set for doing it that didn't really work for YouTube. Uh, you know, we were shipping this mobile app that had to go on a certain cycle. And so we need to set goals a little bit differently. And so we redid our process. And, you know, what did we build it in? We built it in Google Sheets. It was the most obvious thing to use. Uh, you know, another example was the performance review process at Google had a particular set of values. I, I had this crazy theory around doing level independent performance management. And so we did that in a completely different way and ended up doing it in this big network of spreadsheets. You know, one of my, one of my actually favorite examples is the uh, if you hit flag on a YouTube video back in 2008, 2009, it would create a row and a spreadsheet on an ops person's desk. And all of this, you know, some people saw this as crazy. I saw this as our sort of strategic strength. You know, we could be, you know, because it was our system, we could be nimble in how we planned. We could adjust our performance system, you know, adjust how we thought about our different workflows and, and sort of do it the way, the way we wanted. And all of it was done in Docs and Sheets. And so when we were thinking about starting Coda, this, this observation was you know, pretty core. And when I looked around, I, I just saw the same pattern everywhere. Every time we looked at, we'd, we'd ask a team, like, what tools do you use at work? And they would name a bunch of software, and then you'd watch them, and they used you know, docs and sheets to do just about everything. And that really was uh, crucial to this observation, the world runs on docs, not apps. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's interesting that everyone wants to adopt these standards or these frameworks and ways of working, OKRs being a prime mm. example, but you need to be able to adjust and tinker and, and, and tweak it a little bit to make it work just for you. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about docs and spreadsheets. Yeah. And here's a fun fact to you. Yeah. Bet you already probably know this, of course, <laughs> though. 2019 is actually the 30-year anniversary of Microsoft Office. Yeah. And it's in the DNA of just about every productivity app and suite, including Google's own G Suite. Uh, given the approach that you guys are taking at Coda and everything that you've learned along the way, what limitations do you see with that office model? Yeah, the DNA, that's an interesting frame for it, the, the DNA frame. It's actually, I'd say that the core metaphors actually go back even further because Office itself was, you know, the set of tools before that that also shared a lot of that, those same similarities. We have this this joke we use at, at work, which is that if Austin Powers were to pop out of his freezing chamber, this movie was on last night, so it's very fresh <laughs> in my mind. Uh, I just Austin, watched it on the flight home from Dublin recently. Did you really? Yeah. Uh, it's just so, so good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They don't make comedies like that anymore. It's yeah. really good. So Austin Powers, if he popped out of his freezing chamber, he wouldn't know what clothes to wear, he wouldn't know what music to listen to, but he would absolutely know how to work a document, a spreadsheet, and a presentation because they haven't changed since the 70s. Yep. And, that, and the metaphors back then from, you know, if you take WordStar, VisiCalc, Harvard Graphics, they all set these metaphors that we're like all used to now. Like what, what does it mean to be a document and how do pages get structured and what are slides look like? Or, you know, if you think about spreadsheets, like even concepts like, you know, A1, B2, C3, this thing we call, we call that battleship, like that's lasted 40 years. And it's, you know, it's a little bit nuts that in that period of time, 
every other piece of software is completely different. I mean, you think about like operating systems. We went from like, you know, DOS to Android. Like we, you know, you think about things like, you know, databases or search engines or social networks or messaging tools, like everything is completely different. And yet there's this, this thing we use all day long. We use it to run our teams, our families, our businesses. And that thing is stuck in, in, you know, the Austin Powers past. And that's really sort of, like pretty critical to the the Coda view of the world because you know sort of second observation of Coda is like first one is the world runs on docs not apps and the second one is like those docs haven't changed in forty years and so you know when we started we started with like the 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 statement we wrote was you know what if we started from scratch and started with a new set of building blocks ignored the past what would we, what would we build it's probably worth mentioning I mean I, it's super risky to do this I, mean, I, I get asked all the time that it's been that way for 40 years. Like, doesn't that mean it's really good? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why, why bother changing yeah. it? And, and you know, it broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. And if, you know, it's been there for 40 years and it's, you know, people are very used to it. And so we have to be, we have to be really careful. And, you know, if you try to change something like that, you can, you can easily overshoot. And, and so we try really hard to be familiar when appropriate and adjust and, and, and new when appropriate. But we felt pretty strongly that the time was right to build a new type of dock and you know reimagine it from the from the ground up. Yeah, and yeah. I think to your point, like one of the hardest challenges with changing a way of thinking with someone's use of something that's been around for such a long time that they're so familiar with is that people don't like change. Yeah. And making that change and shift in behavior is incredibly hard, incredibly hard, but I think you guys are doing a tremendous job. Thanks. So you've observed that these documentation and spreadsheet tools haven't changed for the last 40 years. And on the flip side, we're seeing more and more workers bringing their own favorite apps to the workplace. Uh, even with that happening, we still see people reverting back to docs and spreadsheets. Why is that the case? Yeah, so I agree. I think the there's a phrase I use for this phenomenon. I call it the maker generation. And I actually think you could go back for a moment to where we started this discussion with YouTube. And I think this, this maker generation thing is happening across industries. And so if you think about YouTube, we spent a long time explaining and evangelizing that anyone in the world was capable of being a video creator, that you didn't have to move to LA and pass some Hollywood test in order to be the next Sal Khan. And I think that happened in video, but it actually happened in many industries. Like if you look at, you know, what Etsy did for, for people that, that can build crafts and products, or if you look at the gaming industry and, you know, what people are doing these days in Minecraft and Fortnite, and there's just expectation now that, you know, users can design their own experiences. And that, and I think that's that's an idea every industry is embracing slowly, is that their communities aren't just users of their products, but they're actually makers and contributors to that, to that product. And so in some ways, I think what we're seeing in software is just the next phase of that. The way I look at software is I, I think software itself has gone through its own generations. And at first, software was built by, by hobbyists. And uh, if you go back, there were the days of the you know, homebrew computing club was like Steve Jobs and Wozniak and Gates and so on. And you know everybody just took their tools and built what they needed. And then there was this you know, sort of big right turn. And we had this phase of these large mega application companies and the SAPs of the world. And it, you would get one big thing deployed for, for a whole company and it would solve all problems. And you were sort of forced to use it as you described it. And then there, the, there's this, this phase that started, I think in the early 2000s with this explosion of apps. And in the business world, that was mostly enabled by by SaaS, by by these, 
you know, software as a service companies and the user behavior changed. And now all of a sudden, if you had a problem and, you know, you're some manager of a team, you had a problem, you could take your credit card and you could go buy a solution to your problem. And you didn't necessarily have to ask IT and you had, you know, thousands of things to pick from and you could buy what you needed. And actually in the consumer world, same thing happened, you know, with all the app stores is there's now like tons of different things to go buy. But in this next phase, you know, I think we're entering software's version of the of the maker generation. And I think people don't expect just to buy things anymore. They expect to be able to to make them themselves. You know, I, I obviously like code is betting super heavily on this, much like uh, <laughs> much like, uh, you know, YouTube bet on the same movement in the video space. Uh, and I'm guessing there'll be similar levels of people that think it's a little bit crazy, <laughs> which is uh, which is fine with us. But I think it's really inspiring because I think when when you hand people the ability to solve their own problems, they do a much better job. And I think we're going to see sort of similar to what YouTube did in video. We're going to see this explosion of creativity as people take these tools and solve problems in ways that nobody really expected. So I think it's, I think it's really exciting. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So speaking of Coda, hmm. we've recently started using it very heavily, as you probably know, here at Intercom. And it started in our R&D team, using it for roadmap planning and goal tracking. And what's particularly interesting, at least to me, is that how quickly it's spread rather into other parts of the business. Uh, just yesterday, someone in the product marketing team shared a Coda doc with me that's acting as the entire project plan and content repository for an overhaul of our marketing site that we're working on. And I absolutely love it. I love seeing people find new and interesting ways to use Coda because uh, it's such a great tool. Is our experience that we've had at Intercom common? Do you see that at other customers too? Yeah, it's, it's super common. I mean, I think the, you know, and, and it's probably different variations at different company sizes. You know, at larger companies, folks like you guys, or like at Uber or Spotify, we'll see this pattern where one team starts with Coda, 
they build something great, they see this new set of building blocks, but all the teams are really interconnected. And so in that same group, you know, there's a, a marketer, there's a salesperson, there's an HR person, and they, they realize they can use those same set of building blocks to solve a totally different set of problems. So they take it, they go, they go back to their team and, and start something new. And it can happen in sort of unexpected ways. I, mean, I was just talking to a user at a, um, a large newspaper and they've been using Coda for a lot of different things. And we were just talking to their team, and you know, one of the persons on the team mentioned that uh, the thing they were most excited about was they were using Coda to plan their holiday dinner. And so there's you know sort of lots of different ways that that happens. Smaller companies are interestingly a little bit different. You know, I was I was helping out this customer the other day on Intercom, of course, and they they run a set of beer festivals in in Europe. And interestingly, the doc was in Danish, so I had to have Google Translate up to try to, to try to try to help them. It's maybe a new feature for Intercom. Um, the uh, but the, you know he's sort of describing what he's trying to do in this doc, and in that case it's like almost the opposite. That doc did like everything for this business. Like it was this one place, and it had like you'd be like ten different apps. It was like his CRM tool to track his vendors, and it was like it was his calendar and his inventory, and you know he's sort of building this thing out to do all these different things. There's another one in uh, in Virginia called Hudson Henry Granola, and uh, they run their entire business out of Coda. They've like you know it's inventory system. They built this really cool time card system and time tracking system. But we see this pattern all the time that, especially in smaller businesses, they'll take it and they'll take all the building blocks and sort of like build up this one big thing. And then larger business will see that they'll they'll learn one pattern and it'll sort of break apart into different different solutions in different places. But sort of same idea. Once you learn this new set of building blocks, you can literally there's no end of the places you can use it. Right. So you recently launched these things called packs, which connect your Codedocs to the apps that you use every day. Uh, the ones that your teams might already use to communicate, code, and design in. The appeal to me is obvious. With PAX, you can sync data across all those different tools and optimize workflows and processes and avoid redundancy, and Coda sits at the center of it all. Tell me, though, what's the underlying product strategy at play here? Do you see Coda becoming a platform for the workplace, for the entire workplace at large, rather? Yeah, I love it. PAX is our, our newest building block. Maybe first I should explain what packs are. The history is we... You know, we shipped our beta about a year ago, got lots and lots of feedback. Thousands of different people gave us different instructions on what they thought we should do. And uh, by far the most common was, can you connect Coda to the rest of the world? And so that's basically what a pack does, is every Coda pack connects Coda to another service in the way that's that's appropriate for that service. And so, for example, you know, there's a weather pack where you can continuously pull local weather data into your dock, or you can pull from tools like your calendar or from GitHub. Uh, but you can also do it the other way. You can interact with the world. And so we have a concept called buttons, and you can init- initiate actions. And so you can, you know, send emails from Coda, you can send text messages, you can, you know, initiate conversations on, on Intercom. And it's, you know, super interesting to see what, what people have built with this. And, you know, actually, you know, I think Intercom is a particularly good example for this. When, when we were building the Intercom pack, I came by here and showed it to, showed it to Des, and, and he gave me, you know, a bunch of advice and great ways to think about it. And, you know, we're big Intercom customers as well. And, and you know, for us, it performs two big functions. It's like this communication channel so we can talk to everybody, but it's also a store of record for our, for our user data. And when you make that accessible to a doc, all, you know, all sorts of things can happen. And, you know, the... The most obvious example for us is like routing feedback. So one of the benefits of Intercom is we get this really personal human experience for our users. But one of the implications, I think some people think it's a downside. I think that's short-sighted. Is you generate lots of feedback, and so you get a lot. You get a lot. A lot. You know, you talk to your users. They're going to talk a lot. And usually, I think that gets kept in. In for a lot of organizations, we see that gets like 
kept in intercom and you know a bunch of support people know it but it doesn't sort of flow through the whole organization and so what we did is we used that intercom pack and now all of that flows into a coda doc and gets you know synthesized prioritized categorized by the product team but the best part sort of what happens next because we can take that we take that group of users and we can communicate back with them and so we can say things like there's a group of people you know they complained about a bug and so when we fix it and we mark that in one system then uh, you know the coda doc triggers an automation and all that automatically goes and reopens all those conversations on intercom with a little message that says hey this thing you reported you know two weeks ago or two months ago it's now been fixed uh, yep. please give us feedback and you know that loop is like really hard to create and it's you know it makes us feel it makes our users feel like we have superpowers must be listen all the time and it makes us feel really good about working on the right different things but that's sort of the idea is that packs allow everyone to orchestrate you know the world in the way that they know and you don't no longer have to be a developer in order to do that yeah, I think the the important point there is regardless of the sets of tools you're using, you want to be able to create these closed-loop workflows. And yeah. prior to coding them, yeah, it wasn't really options. accessible to, the, right. I guess, the broader set of users and packs make that accessible. Yeah. So they've been uh, available for a few months now. What are some of the more popular packs that are used amongst your customer base? Yeah, so we, we're, we're seeing a lot of interesting packs usage. You know, a lot of it is on services you'd expect that everybody uses, you know, Gmail and Calendar and and Slack and, and so on. But some of the most interesting ones are services that people might not naturally use or think to use. You know, as an example, we had a real estate agent uh, writing the other day asking if she could send text messages from a doc. And uh, we said, absolutely. And she ended up using the Twilio pack, which is probably a service that uh, you know, she would never really think of because it's really built for developers. And so I think it's one of the really interesting things about PAX is allowing a new set of services to address an audience that they may not have talked to before. Now, I've got to ask, <laughs> Coda, Airtable, Notion, it really feels like we're seeing this new wave of documentation and collaboration tools hitting the market, all trying to reinvent and, I guess, improve our workday. Uh, and it was only a couple of years ago that Salesforce acquired Quip for an insane multiple. Airtable raised a huge round recently and achieved unicorn status. How do you see this market evolving in the next few years? Uh, it's, it's interesting. You, you've been around this industry a long time, so I'm curious what you think. Putting it back on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a stab. Well, um, you know, I worked for Atlassian for six years prior to, to joining Intercom, and uh, I was responsible way back in the day for uh, selling Confluence and, and eventually marketing Confluence. And I think if I, if I think about what's changed from 10 years ago to today, I'd, I'd put it into three buckets. The first would be just the evolution and maturity of the web browser. What you can do in the web browser today and what companies like Coder are allowing their users to do is just so vastly different to what was possible 10 years ago. When I used to give demos of Confluence you know, 10 years ago using WebEx, I used to have to structure my demo to a T so that I didn't expose bugs in the product. And this was at a time where using a web browser to edit a web page with something that looked like Microsoft Word was a revelation. And so I think that would be the first thing. Like, browser technology has just made so many more things possible and that user experience not only more powerful but enjoyable. True. I think the second one for me would be, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, this shift towards the accepted use of software as a service tools in the workplace. That just you know, has really lowered the barrier to adoption to 
all of these types of tools and have resulted in people bringing their own tools to work. Mm -hmm. And if they're successful, and they often are, they're adopted by more teams and they just spread organically throughout the company. Uh, and even if you are supposed to ask IT before you pull your credit card out, you often don't. Right. <laughs> um, so I think SaaS has been a big one. And then lastly, you know, as we just kind of touched on, as we were talking about PACs and how PACs have made things that were only possible via APIs accessible to the broader user base, I think this increased accessibility to really powerful functions or applications of things like relational databases and uh, functions that you would only know if you asked someone who knew how to use Excel really, really, really well and be able to use things like pivot tables. All of those things are now just so much more accessible and easier to use thanks to tools like Coda, Notion, and Airtable. Mm-hmm. Um, how'd I do? Do you see yeah. things differently? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's. I think those are uh, really astute observations and and lead to a lot of what we're seeing here. I mean, I, I think I get asked a lot why why did YouTube happen in two thousand six instead of in two thousand or or you know ten years earlier or so on. And and really, it wasn't any one thing. It's lots of things happen together that make products like that and that that sort of emergence of a new market happen. And I think it's sort of similar thing here. As you said, it's some mix of things like browser technologies and SaaS and and so on all come together. You know, our view of the world is that all of that is in a backdrop of this this thing I refer to as a maker generation, where everybody's expecting to be able to to make their own tools. And so our our approach is to try to give people a new set of building blocks and a a set of primitives that they can then assemble together into uh, whatever makes sense for them. We like to say docs as powerful as apps. But that's our approach, and I think it's really exciting to see lots of people in this space building all sorts of new things. Okay, so to wrap things up, let's talk a little bit about what's next for Coda. Uh, you've just released Coda 1.0. What does that look like, and where are things headed next? Yeah, so it's super exciting right now, and I can I can maybe give a little bit of context on 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 the the launch in Coda 1.0. You know, we we built Coda a little bit non traditionally in that we spent the first three years in stealth, and we. Uh, didn't talk about it publicly. We iterated a lot with our user feedback groups, but we tried to do it out of the public eye. And then that group started to grow, and we decided that to get to the next level of feedback, we we needed to be able to talk publicly about the product. And so in late 2017, we launched the beta. And that that was great. A ton of people signed up, and we let them in in, in batches to, to be sure that we could get you know discrete feedback as as the product got better and better and better, and they've given tons of feedback, but and many of them asked, like, why, why haven't you launched Coda 1.0 already? But I felt pretty strongly that we weren't ready yet. And to be clear, you know, the product we've shipped is really useful to people, but I wanted to ship Coda 1.0 when we could really describe and deliver on our core message, what I view as our core promise, our thesis, back to the, the start of this conversation. And, you know, our belief at Coda is that anyone can make a doc that's as powerful as an app. Yep. And... You know, probably the most notable feature coming in Coda 1.0 is a is a pretty significant rethink of our mobile experience. Uh, when we shipped our beta, we shipped a pretty Spartan mobile experience, and our, our users definitely told us that. But we, you know, it, it was intentional. We had an ordering in mind that we wanted to get the right building blocks in place, and that would allow the mobile experience to work the way the way we really wanted. So as people try the new mobile experience, they're going to find that it's crafted around that that thesis that you know you can you know build docs as powerful as apps. So if you go look at the Coda template gallery today, you know, you'll see what I mean. And I, I think one of my favorite examples is from this guy, Ben, in Atlanta. He, he works at an outdoor retailer. He teaches kayaking and mountain biking classes. And he built this this dock in Coda to manage the bike inventory for the office. That They, they sort of lease these bikes out or rent these bikes out to, to people. 
And uh, you know, it's a really cool dock. It's pretty simple. It's you know, got a table, a bunch of views, and some some buttons in it. But uh, you know, when we were building mobile, we showed it to him and loaded it on his phone, and and you know, he was just shocked. I mean, it really, it went from I think his expectations were that he was going to see a spreadsheet-like squinty view of his you know his beautiful document, and instead he he, w- he saw a thing that really felt like an app, and every interaction felt like it was built for mobile. And you know, the the tabs at the bottom made sense. The actions he had set up on the desktop with all these buttons. It turned into swipes on rows. And, you know, he had spent an afternoon building this thing that he thought was like a really cool dock. But, you know, when he opened it on his phone with sort of no additional work, it really felt like an app and something that he could hand to the rest of his team and, you know, know that they'll be able to directly use it. And so anyways, between the the mobile experience and what we discussed with PAX, I, I feel pretty good about making this this crazy statement that we're we're delivering on this promise that anyone can make a dock as powerful as an app. And you know, one way to think about it is the mobile experience makes docs really feel like an app. And what we've done with packs and some other features like automation, they they make a doc really act like an app. And so, you know, Coda 1.0 is out now. I'm I'm super excited that anyone can sign up directly, use the product without waiting in line, which is just awesome by itself. Uh, but more importantly, I'm really excited everyone can start making docs as powerful as apps. That's awesome. I love, love, love the approach that you guys took to getting to this point. And I've had the privilege to see and play with some of the things that you've just released. And I can't recommend your product enough. All our listeners out there should go check it out and have a play. Yeah, Coda.io. Awesome. Well, Shashir, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you, Matt. If you enjoy our chat with Shashir, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing to Inside Intercom now on the podcast platform of your choice. This is Inside Intercom.